Welcome to Forward Looking Leadership, a podcast for visionary executives building future-ready organizations. I'm your host, Dan Freeling. I'm the founder of Contempus Leadership, a coaching practice that helps organizations develop their leadership pipeline through virtually unlimited coaching for their top rising talent. I'm honored to be joined today by Dan Bredesen. Dan is an organizational development, culture, and leadership expert, and the author of the new book, Seeds of Culture. He is also the director of field development for CNO Financial Group and brings over 20 years of leadership experience with a Fortune 500 company and several nonprofit organizations. Dan is a member of AFLAC's West Territory Hall of Fame and has a master's degree in organizational leadership and learning from the George Washington University. His ideas regarding culture and performance are influenced as much by his upbringing on a farm as they are by his professional experience and formal education. Dan and I were grad school classmates who enjoyed working together so much that we partnered in virtually every group project. We became fast friends and have remained so since. Let's get right into it. Thanks for joining me on Forward Looking Leadership, Dan. It is a pleasure to be here, and it's always great to chat with you. Likewise, likewise. So, Dan, what drove you to write this book? Oh, uh, wow. Oh, boredom? No. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I did start it in, in, in early 2020. So uh, we did have a lot of time in, in the house to sit down and, and do some writing. But no, the, the main impetus for it was um, over the course of my career, I, I interacted with a lot of different companies of varying size and very varying industry. And uh, I was actually in the insurance industry. And as part of my job there, it was to call on companies and talk to them about the employee benefits they're going to be offering to their, their employees. And then, so I was, I was meeting with people in the C-suite, executives, right? Uh, directors of HR, those, those kind of things, CEOs, CFOs sometimes. So I'd see and hear, I'd hear about the type of culture that the organization uh, wanted or aspired to. But then throughout the course of the implementation, I would talk to middle managers. I would talk all the way down to frontline employees because I was talking to them about the type of benefits that they were going to be offered. So I saw a broad disconnect quite often between the type of culture that the executives thought they had, wanted to have, and what was actually happening on the ground, right, on the front line. And it was really interesting. And and I had several clients for 10 years, 15 years, and I saw leaders come and go within certain organizations, right? And I saw some leaders who were, were winning, you know, in every aspect that you could uh, define winning for an organization and, and, other, and other organizations that weren't winning. And, and there were some common threads uh, throughout those leaders and the things that they were doing and the type of culture that those organizations had. And I, I was trying to, you know, put the pieces together as to, what creates this winning culture, right? And and what's not happening in the organizations that aren't winning? And the the leaders that were a part of cultures that were really performing well, they 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 reminded me of someone. Uh, they reminded me of my dad, who's who's a Midwestern dairy farmer. And they these leaders had like the patience of a farmer. They uh, we're really about growing and, and nurturing, and they use terms like you know mentoring uh, the next group of leaders. So yeah, the the aha moment to write the book was really I, I wanted to come up with a way to help leaders think differently, kind of change a paradigm around the way that they think about culture. I witnessed too many failed cultural transformations because. 
I just thought that people were going about it all wrong. So I, I did a little bit of research. I, I reflected on my past experience and spent a couple of years, put it all together. And that's how we wound up with Seeds of Culture. That's lovely. I'm, I'm glad you um, brought in your dad into this and that farmer perspective of the, the long term of taking your time with leadership and not trying to sort of rush it and throw something together and hope that it works and, and changes everything overnight. Uh, yeah, exactly. It's, you know, um, no matter how long you think it's going to take, uh, it's, it's going to take you twice as long. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, so there was, there was really, um, you know, kind of some fundamental mistakes that I, I saw far too many executives making when it came to their approach to culture. Um, you know, my assertion, my assertion and my thesis, you could say around it is that there's way too many organizations that are struggling with culture because their, their leaders are thinking like a carpenter when they should really be thinking like a farmer. You know, they, they think about culture in construction terms, like, you know, let's build our culture or let's go lay a solid foundation for culture. You know, we need to transform culture, you know, as if we can pick it up and, and shape it with our hands. And I would suggest, and the book argues that leaders who I refer to as culture farmers should look at culture as an organic process. Um, culture is grown, it's not built. And the type of culture that they should aspire to grow, the type of culture that will yield the, the best crop of results, and staying with the metaphor, is what I call a culture of commitment. This is a culture where people show up and they work hard for the organization and for each other because they want to, not because they have to. You know, I've seen a lot of cultural transformations that seem to be seeking compliance, right? Yeah, you know, versus commitment. And if you can grow a culture of commitment, you're going to watch your organization soar. And to do that, you need to plant the right seeds of culture. This seems to be spot on, and a lot of um, you know, how do you how do you get people to really commit to the organization, to show up, to perform well to feel that ownership it, it seems key here rather than you know how do i get people to comply with my dictates as the the top dog in this organization that just doesn't work obviously yeah and they'll do that for as long as they have to right they'll 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 uh they'll comply uh until they get a better offer somewhere else so you know that's you know, that, that was part of the whole chapter two of the of the book is I did a lot of research about the Great Resignation. I thought I was going to be able to release the book a lot quicker. But um, right as I was finishing it up, the Great Resignation was like all over the headlines. So I'm like, ah, I can't write a book about culture and not, and not include something about this. <laughs> People are going to be like, how toned up are you? So it, it, you know, it took another few months of just really, you know, actually watching that play out a little bit. You know, I mean, it was last time you heard uh, something about the Great Resignation. Yeah, no, it's um, it's been months, right? But it was here. It was a real thing. I mean, it really, really happened. So I kind of dig into into that uh, in chapter two, and and yeah, you know, the the idea being that uh, folks will stick around until they don't have to. When the labor market corrected, um, when the world started to open back up a little bit, people are like, you know, peace out. I've been waiting a year to quit this job, but. Uh, you know, resignations and, and the number of quits in the marketplace are really a pro-cyclical ec economic event. You know, when the, when the economy's booming, people are more willing to leave their job because they're confident they can go find another one. I mean, if the, if the economy is a dumpster fire, they're not going to quit because, you know, you can try to find another job if everyone around you is getting laid off. No. So, uh, 
they'll come all that to say is that they'll comply with uh with your mandates and what you're asking them to do for as long as they have to and then and they'll vote right and, and real it. exactly and, and real winning as an organization isn't isn't derived by you know the sort of lowest common denominator employees who feel like they have no choice but to stay and they're gonna just you know stay in the organization no matter what happens it's it's by bringing on those people who do have options who are able to walk and go somewhere else but how do you actually convince them to be committed to the org and stay in their roles and thrive in their roles so i'm thinking of the you know the other leaders who are listening to this and they're they're thinking okay maybe you know i can get behind this 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 sounds like something that makes sense that i might want to do um what would you recommend to someone who's ready to make this shift in terms of how they actually go about doing it. You know, the traits of, of successful culture farmers that I've recognized, the folks that really do a good job, um, there's, there's six different traits that, that I've recognized. Um, the first one is, um, I call it affinity. Good culture farmers have an affinity for people. They actually like people. Now you'd think that You'd think that leading people, a prerequisite for leading people would be liking people, but that's not always the case. You know, it's, uh, you know, it's we can as, be real. As everyone who's worked in an organization. <laughs> <laughs> right? It's, uh, you, you, you'd think that leaders should like people, but, you know, it doesn't always work out that way. You know, if, hey, let's be honest. We can be frustrating creatures sometimes, right? Uh, so what I've seen more often than not is what I call fluctuating affinity, right? You know, you you start out as a, as a new leader, you're, you're excited, right? When someone's first promoted into a leadership role, they're really excited. They got a lot of enthusiasm. You know, they got rose tinted glasses. Everything looks great. They're in the honeymoon phase, right? But then after you have some frustrating interactions with folks and you start to see people at their worst as often as you see them at their best, you know, you kind of cynicism starts to grow, right? And then your, your affinity kind of starts to fluctuate. And sometimes you're just done with people. And if you ever felt that way, ever, you know, or is it just, you always look at everyone, like everything's awesome all the time. No, I think it's important. Yeah. It's important to recognize that it's a, it's a very human interaction leadership and yeah, you're going to, you're going to hey you know, off on, on mood on certain days, you're going to have different relationships with different people. It's all part of the, the process there as, as you know. Yeah. And, and, and what I've seen, the best culture farmers, um, what they do and what, what I've tried to do in, in those, in those times when I've got that fluctuating affinity, which I might not be a fan of, of people at, at a particular time is <clears throat> stay humble, curious and make connections. So humility, curiosity and connectivity. Um, to kind of put myself, to ground myself back in a place where I can have that affinity for people to be the best type of culture farmer that I can be for them is to stay humble. You know, if you look down on people, don't expect them to look up to help you grow culture, right? Curiosity, stay curious about folks. Um, I, I remember when I was, was new to the sales game and new to the, the sales leadership game, you know, everyone was just a prospect to me, right? Everyone that I met was just, you know, oh, can, can I sell to that person? And then if I, when I was moving into a sales leadership role, it was like, well, is this person going to help me hit my quota? I really wasn't interested in them as an individual or what they wanted. And, you know, a, a few years of struggling to make my sales quota, uh, 
I was like, well, I, I got to step back here. I, and, you know, I, I, <laughs> the marketplace humbled me. How about that? So I'm learning from experience there. So this humility was grown out of like, whoa, okay, so I made my quota, but just barely. I didn't make the kind of bonuses that I want to. Got humbled by the marketplace a little bit. And I don't know how or why, but I just, I started becoming more curious about the people I was selling to and the people that I was selling with, right? And I learned that, you know, people are sometimes frustrating, but they're always fascinating. Now, one of my favorite things to do is just chat with people and kind of, everyone is fascinating, you know? Yes. Even you, whoever's listening to this, you've got, you've got a gold mine of great stories out there. Even if you think you live a, a mundane life. And, and everyone else that you run into, the uh, every frontline employee that you have or person that you work with, or maybe it's someone in the office who you don't have a great affinity for, there's still something in their background that's fascinating. Endeavor to find out what that is. And fascinating for the sake of, of being fascinating, not as a means to an end, uh, being really important there, not seeing people as just prospects or as, you know, widgets in, in a factory, but yes. as unique people who are valuable inherently. Yeah. Like um, the term you use in the book, you know, an authentic curiosity, right? An authentic curiosity that is not born out of like, because people can, people can sniff out inauthentic curiosity, right? Right. That it's like called, slick salesman. Yeah. It's called nosiness. <laughs> if, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's intrusive people. Um, so, you know, that was, you know, the more I get to, everyone's got a, everyone's got a great story in their background or some like weird job that they did. And I love finding that stuff out. Um, and then the, the third part of, you know, kind of growing affinity is, uh, is con- I call it connectivity, right? Which is just, you know, connecting with folks and, and finding a way, um, to on purpose proactively connect with people you know remember the special occasions um i at one point i had uh i was leading a sales team of about 275 uh sales agents and and every single person every single year got a got a handwritten birthday card for me right so i had a nice little logo of the organization on it inside you know happy birthday i said happy birthday make it a great day and I would underline, make it, right? So, I mean, you know, take control, go out there and make this a great day. Everybody got the same card, right? And then I'd sign it. And 275 people. The other thing that they got every year for me was an anniversary card, a work anniversary card. Because in that particular organization, vesting and how long you've been with the organization, you know, was, was a really big deal, you know, from a financial perspective. So it'd be like, you know, if they've been with the company nine years, it'd be like, can you believe it? you started nine years ago? Only one more year to you're fully vested. Go get it. You know, something like that. And it, and I had, I put a, you know, a process in, in place for that. Um, I had my assistant who would come in uh, the third Tuesday of every month and she would drop, you know, two big lists on my desk. And it was the birthdays and anniversaries that were coming up for the next month. And I would sit in there and I would handwrite all these. I mean, I carved out time on my my schedule in order to create those connections. And Dan, I got to tell you that as I traveled around, there were six different regional offices that I was leading. I travel around to these, the offices and I, you know, I'd go into the regional manager's office and, you know, more often than not sitting on the shelf right alongside the, the sales award that they're most proud of would be my handwritten anniversary card. Yeah. Just that simple gesture. 
And, and it almost became a point of pride because I, I was with that organization for just under 10 years that, that it was, it, it was kind of like having your stripes, like how many anniversary cards do you have from Dan? And they'd line them up, you know, and it was kind of cool to walk in and see, that's right. We've been working together for six years. You see six cards lined up, you know? So connection, um, Money will money may get a person to show up to work, but it's going to take appreciation and recognition to get them to commit. So that's I don't know where I got the the idea to do his handwritten cards, but man, it was it was popular. And um, this is all all driving toward that cultural commitment. Yeah, every every single piece of this. Yeah, and the, the final thing on making connection is go break bread with people. That there's nothing like if you can, you know, if you can find a way to sit down and have a meal with folks. That that's a great point of connection and, and make a point to not talk about work. I had a mentor who, when we went to lunch, um, if, you know, if I talked about work, then I'd have to buy, <laughs> you know, cause she, she just wanted to, you know, to make a, a connection. Uh, um, I'm also blessed with, uh, with, an, with an Italian wife who loves to cook and entertain. So when I would have like the sales team, not all 275 at once, but typically like the sales managers and leaders come to our house a couple times a year. She'd throw a big piece and there's just nothing like having folks in your home to just make you as the leader real to folks in, in my experience. So if you have an opportunity to do that, that's a great way to build connection, which is going to grow your affinity for people. Um, yeah. And to the, to the tangible actions question, I mean, those are all really practical steps that leaders can take to, to grow this. And it may not be the, fancy frameworks and it may not be the hard charging things that you think you need to do to build the culture. Um, but these smaller, genuine, authentic actions can help to really grow that, that culture over the long term. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the part with the, the affinity was that I, uh, that would be the second piece of that that leaders can do is, is make culture a priority. Right. And I mean, what I mean by that is actually, Talk about culture out loud, you know, make it a priority, uh, put it on your calendar. The, you know, the birthday cards, the anniversary cards on my calendar, it was a priority. Culture was a priority. I actually carved time out to do that, right? Yeah, this is your job as a leader is to, to do this. This is not some side activity that's not as important as what you see as the bottom line. This is what actually helps to grow the bottom line. Yeah, it, I totally agree. It's, uh, I was I was working with uh, uh, consulting uh, with a, with a with a leader of an organization that was struggling a little bit, and I, I recommended to her, you know, I, as I was and spent some time around the organization, the different leaders, I said, "Hey, you work, need to work on the culture around here." And and what she said to me was, um, "I've already done that." They just need to execute the strategy. This strategy would work if these people would just do their damn jobs, right? That that told me a couple of things. Uh, number one, I'm not really sure she was high on the affinity scale for folks. It seems like she was a little frustrated. Um, the other thing, she hadn't really made culture a priority by saying, but I made the recommendation of, you know, maybe go out, work on the culture, build some relationships with folks, you know, before getting them to try to execute on the strategy. When she said, I've already done that, made me, made me understand, or I understood at that point that, that, that she looked at culture as like a, a box you can check. 
Oh, I'm the new leader here. Okay, go create culture. Hmm, okay, check. I did that. Right. Moving on to plan. You know, step two. It that that, that that's that's not the patience of a farmer. Right. That's that's like a carpenter who thinks like, okay, so I attach this piece to here and then I screw them together. Like, you know, she hadn't really made culture a priority. So that'd be the second thing that a leader can do is that, you know, put it on your calendar, talk about it. And when I say it's a recurring event on your calendar, right? It's not a one time thing. It's going to take a continuous. My dad didn't just plant seeds in the ground and then walk away. You know, you got to continue to nurture them and get them, get them to grow. Right, you're never done with with growing this culture. You're this is something that that requires continuous tending to. Yeah, absolutely. Because guess what? You're gonna have you, you know you're gonna have some performance. That's the crop of performance that you get. And then guess what? In Wisconsin, at least where I grew up, winter came. You see what you got to do next spring. You got to replant. Right. So it could be the performance that you have for a year. Hey, it's December 31st. Awesome. You immediately go from hero to zero. Time to crank it up again. Right. As soon as January 1st comes. So it, it has to be a, um, a repeating calendar event. And that, and that's going to take the third part, the third kind of trait of successful culture farmers is, is energy. It's going to take a lot of energy, physical, mental, and, and emotional energy in order to so if you're looking for a tangible takeaway for, for leaders is that, you know, there was a time when I, I was first promoted to a leadership role in my, my early twenties. And, and let's just say that, that Dan liked going out for a few beers after, after meetings. Right. And, uh, Midwesterner uh, show. <laughs> it was it, exactly. That <laughs> was, um, it was just part of the culture, you know? And, uh, man, there was, when I think back on how many days, I was on the struggle bus, you know, getting up in the morning and having to go and perform at, at the top of my game. You know, it was, oof, you know, let's just say that my, there was no coincidence that when I was like working out and getting in shape and having the physical energy, my actual performance improved as well. So it takes some physical energy. Uh, the mental energy is just never stop learning. You know, I went back to grad school at 44 years old. No, was I 46? Like I'm so old, I can't even think. I don't even know. I, I was in my mid-40s when I decided to go back to grad school. I mean, you were there. You know I was the old guy in the room. Um, so, the but it was, I just had always had something in my head like, you know, I want to go get my master's degree. I want to go get my master's degree. Well, I was grinding away, you know, working my way up the ladder and leading teams for 20 years. And plenty of folks could have said, well, why are you bothering to go get a master's degree now? And it was, I, was, I didn't, I never wanted to stop learning. And also I wanted to show my, my kids that's important. So, um, and yeah, then and there's no, there's no point where similar to where there's no point of where you can stop tending to culture. There's also no point where you as a leader can stop learning new things and stop trying to come up with, come up on the latest and continue to look ahead. Never stop learning. Have that mental energy, and then the third type of energy, which uh, is, I think, is man. I don't know if anyone is more important than the other, but it's emotional energy. This can be draining being a leader. You know, it. It's the when I think about my dad and, and as a as a farmer, like just the emotional energy of like he had four kids, he had a wife and four kids to feed, and when milk prices went down, we didn't have a nice Christmas. 
right? If there was a drought, it, it was tough times. Like just that, that emotional resilience. And that's, you know, when it comes to emotional energy, enthusiasm is your offense and resilience is your defense. Um, the, just having that resilience, you know? And I, I wish I wish I could bottle and sell resilience. Man, I, we wouldn't be talking right now. I'd be on an island somewhere. But w- whatever you can do to um, try to become more resilient, you know, there's plenty of, you know, plenty of TED Talks on grit and resilience. But that's your defense. That's your emotional defense. Your enthusiasm is your emotional offense. And you have to play both in your mind of of having that resilience and having that enthusiasm to to really bring this energy that that's needed to grow culture. Yes, exactly. And then the uh, fourth trait of successful leaders that I, I and far, uh, culture farmers is authenticity. Um, there's so many fake things out in the world, you know, Dan. Like there's it's it's there's a scarcity now of realness and trust, in my opinion. Yeah, and there's. You know, from fake news to fake Twitter bots to, you know, just it's people are looking for real, you know, Um, and in my opinion, authenticity, if you're if you're well, how can I be authentic? Well, ground it in self-awareness and sincerity, you know, be be self-aware, you know, and and if and if you don't know what your blind spots are, ask someone you trust, have have the courage to go to have the courage to be self-aware. And, and how are other people perceiving you as a leader, right? Seek out some peers, seek out the folks that, that report to you and figure out what you're good at, figure out what you're, what you're bad at, but, but be, be authentic to, to who you are and then, and then stick to it, which is, you know, the sincerity part. Um, you know, the opposite of sincerity would be fake, right? So, um, Another trait of culture farmers is, is the next one on the list here is, is credibility. Um, credibility. And, and the way I break it down is that credibility is the reason people will start listening to you. Okay. Um, and because they're going to be, the, the organization is going to be wondering why, especially if you want to start growing culture or if you think that there's a, a cultural change that should happen, they're going to be like, well, why should we listen to you? You know, it's, and that's just human nature. My kids, every question, why, 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 you know, and that doesn't change when we're adults. It's just, it's going to be, well, why should I listen to you? Some things to look out for if you're looking to grow and increase your credibility with the organization. Here's some stuff to look out for. Beware the allure of tenure. Um, quite often, if someone is trying to position themselves as being more credible, right, then maybe their ability would, would lead people to believe they'll just say, well, you know, I've been here for 20 years and this is the way that we do X, Y, Z. No, no one cares how long you've been there. What we care about is that, you know, are you good at your job? Now have, have, uh, have you been here 20 years or have you experienced one year, 20 times? Right. That, that, um, years of experience being a very imprecise proxy for, Actual ability, I think, is something that that comes up over and over again in the research, and it, it's so important to separate those two. I've been playing golf for twenty years, and I suck at it. So wh- why why does tenure, you know, what did, 
Tenure does not equal skill. Just because you've been doing something a long time doesn't mean you do it well. So if, if you are a young leader out there listening to this, is that take solace in that. It's, it's not about how long you've been doing. It's about how well you're doing it while you're in the role. And can you find ways to, to bring value? Um, I was promoted to a regional manager when I was 27 years old. And uh, the district manager, the top producing district manager reported to me was 54 years old twice as old as me. And, you know, if I was maybe a little self-conscious because I was maybe over, overly self-aware of like, well, this person's like you know, twice as old as I am. And maybe I lucked into it or maybe someone told me, but I just, I always tried to find a way to bring her value in, in the ways that I could and understand the ways that I couldn't. And we had a great working relationship, great working relationship. I mean, she eventually retired and we still exchange Christmas cards and I haven't worked with her in I'm going to date myself. Probably haven't worked with her in close to 20 years. Right. But you, you had the same, yeah, you, you were working toward the same goals and you were bringing real value to that relationship. Yeah. And I, and I, I didn't try to, you know, uh, I, I, I shoved my ego aside. I had that humility to be like, watch, well, she knows a lot of stuff. Uh, if you're currently a leader and you're concerned about your credibility, uh, watch out for blind spots. And what I mean, blind spots is like people, you know, the, if you are a, let's say a senior leader and you're, you're promoting and putting junior leaders into position, um, their credibility or lack thereof is going to impact your credibility or lack thereof. People take a look at who you promote in place. And if you do have to take a flyer on someone and take a chance on, you know, promoting someone too early, well, then it's your job to bring them up and mentor them. Because if they suck at their job, other people around that are going to notice it. And they're going to be like, why did, you know, why did Dan promote him? What's that guy, you know? And, and, and sometimes we like people so much, we keep them around and all they're doing is hurting our credibility. Um, next thing to watch out for is, is trying to leverage your title or position. You know, and that can really hurt your credibility. If you have to tell me that, you're a vice president. I immediately find you less credible. It's like, dude, I got the org chart. I know where you sit on it. Yeah. Don't, you don't have to tell me that I should listen to you just simply based upon, you know, the legitimate power or authority of your title. So, right. That should always be a very last resort for, for getting anything done. If even then, and if people can't tell that you're in a real position of authority just from the way that you act and carry yourself and add value to the conversation, then you're doing it wrong. In my opinion, do you ever um, play that, uh, that kind of social experiment where like, say you're out at a business meeting and, and there's a whole group of coworkers sitting around and it's one of those where like, you know, someone's picking up the check. You ever try to guess like <laughs> who the server is going to bring the check to? I don't know if I have, I'd, I'd love to hear, uh, well, here, no, what, what you've done with those? No, yeah. just try it sometime. It's, it's an it's an experiment, like, and and they're they're usually pretty spot on. Like, that's really they're, interesting. They're, they're like you observing. can tell just innately. Yeah. Yes, they can. T- I mean, and maybe you know, maybe it's, it's eh, servers ain't stupid. Like they, you know, they they typically they typically will bring the check to the right person, you know, uh, w- without it, having something else to tell them because they're just picking up on like who's in charge around here, you know, um, yeah. Just next time you go out to, uh, with a large group of I'll, people. I'll definitely that, try that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so after credibility, so credibility is the reason that people will start listening to you. 
integrity is the reason that people will continue listening to you. And that's kind of the, the sixth uh, um, trait of a successful culture farmer is, is integrity is, you know, with, without it, you can just throw all the other attributes that I've just went through and just throw them in the trash. Right. Cause if you don't, if you say one thing and do another, people are going to start, people are going to stop listening to you. Right. So if you lack integrity, if, if your words and your actions don't match up, then, you know, people aren't going to like you. They're not going to have an affinity for you. They're going to be like, does Dan really think culture is a priority? Because, you know, sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. Can't trust what comes out of his mouth. You know, it's going to take a tremendous amount of energy to, to, <laughs> it, it, it's a whole lot less energy to tell the truth than to remember your lies. Right. Um, that your authenticity will come into question, your credibility comes into question. So, you know, the the six traits of, of the really successful leaders, culture farmers are once again affinity. They like people. They make culture priority. That's number two. They have the energy to do it. They're authentic. They're credible. And they have integrity. So moving moving away from the book a little bit, I'd love to get some of your thoughts on some more general leadership trends and looking sure. toward the future of leadership. Um, so just I know you're not you know you're not a fortune teller, but just speculating here, what are some major changes you see coming to the business world in the next five or ten years? Wow. Um... You know, if I can answer that question, I'd be running a hedge fund. Um, five, five years from now, you know, I'm, who knows? You know, COVID jumped on us less than five years ago. Who could, who could have seen that coming? Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, there, there's so many things coming out of the blue. And you mentioned the Great Resignation and all of that, too. Yeah. Um, AI scares the crap out of me. Mostly because I watched The Terminator like a thousand times as a kid. Uh, but, but, uh, also because I probably haven't invested the time to see how it can, you know, be a tool. Um, the, uh, I'm just waiting for Skynet to take over, you know, it's, it's, it's useful when you're, I was just, um, I was just at a coaching conference and they were doing a lot of these presentations with AI and you know, how, how amazing it's going to be. And I think there's, there's a lot to that, obviously. Um, but I think these, these sort of science fiction scenarios do help to ground you in, you know, how could this go wrong? What do we need to be looking out for? So I think there is benefit to having the Terminator. As an example. <laughs> right. They're talking about like AI controlled drones. I'm like, wait a minute. Has no one, has no one watched Terminator. <laughs> <Didn't you listen? laughs> this is, this is exactly how it goes down. Um, so, Five to ten, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna dodge that question. I'm gonna I'm gonna punt on that a little bit. Again, here's why. I, I I'm more of a historian than a futurist. Um, you know, maybe it's just maybe it's because I'm coming off writing a book where I had to do a lot of research, and you know, as I mentioned, I was so close to having this thing, you know, a completed manuscript, and then the Great Resignation was everywhere in the news, and then that kind of forced me to dig into it, and. And during the Great Resignation, there was there was one thing that really drove me nuts, which was, I, I you know, you'd watch the talking heads or read the headlines about the Great Resignation, and people are always like, "Culture matters now more than ever. Now more than ever before, it's important to have a good, positive workplace. Now more than ever, you know." And it was it was almost as often as you'd hear people say, "You know, the new normal. This is the new normal." Like I got tired of both those things, and. I got curious. I'm like, really? Has 
is culture now important for the first time now more than ever? And, and it, is it, you mean it, 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 uh, it's now more important than it was during the Colorado Coalfield War, right? When members of private security and the Colorado National Guard massacred 21 people, including women and children, just to break up a strike, yeah, because people were fighting over workplace culture, or how Carnegie calling in the Pinkertons to break up strikes and all the other labor problems that we had uh, during the Gilded Age. Like, culture has been important forever. You know, it's, it's not suddenly more important. It's, it's a part of our history. It's culture and, and, and a culture of commitment that, that people care about and they, in a place to show up to work where they, they, they feel valued and committed to that organization. It's going to be just as important five years from now and 50 years from now, just as important as it was 50 years ago and a hundred years ago. Right. It, so I don't know if I'm answering a question, but I don't, the major- I think you're getting, yeah, I think you're getting at it. So in my, in my view, a lot of what you're saying here, and definitely chime in if I'm off base here, but there are some real fundamentals that essentially amount to being a decent human being who works well with other people toward common goals as part of their, their work. And doing the basics right is actually rare. And if you can get those basics right and start growing this kind of culture, that's the best way to be ready for whatever the future is going to bring. Yeah. I mean, it's someone asked me, uh, you know, so uh, for the last year I've been working remote, which has been interesting because uh, while I was writing the book, I guess I was working remotely. I was working when I was writing it, but I had never worked like, fully remote uh, until like the last year, which kind of made me nervous because I'd already finished writing the book. <laughs> and I was like, oh, wow, does this stuff still make sense? Like, are, are, the, are the philosophies and the ideas that I have in the book, do they, do they work in a virtual world? And, and the answer is yes. Luckily. Yeah, they're evergreen. Yeah, luckily, because um, you know, where, where do I see the business world going in the next five years? In regards to culture and kind of what I've been spending a lot of time on, I think it's going to be those kind of evergreen ideas that were that were the same back 50 years ago, 100 years ago, right? I mean, the seeds of culture are like effective communication it is five years from now, is ineffective communication going to be better, right? Is uh, another seed of culture is ethics. Are we saying that, you know, is, is ethics going to be different and we're not going to need ethics, right? Do you, you still need ethics in a, in a remote work environment? Just because the way that I define culture is how we do things around here, right? And and those things are everything: how you hire, how you fire, how you recognize, how it's it's how you do everything. That's that's the real the real culture, and and how you do things virtually versus on site in person. You still have to communicate effectively. You still need ethics. You still need psychological safety. Diversity is a good start, but you got to work towards inclusion too generosity it's you can still be generous in a, in a virtual environment autonomy well, that's a big one in a virtual environment and then mutual accountability where we're, we're holding each other accountable because we're both committed to the organization i don't need someone coming in to hold me accountable so yeah so getting getting away from a lot of the kind of fads and the the manufactured debates of the day and and back to some of these really foundational elements is is where you're seeing business leaders need to be going. Well, yeah, and I, 
anecdotally speaking here, I have some friends who are getting forced back to the office. And I'll use that word. They're getting forced back to the office. You know, <laughs> there's different ways. that We've been called back to the office. We've been asked to. Welcomed. We've been welcomed back to the office. And they, they're, they're not happy, even if it's just three days a week. Because for their particular job, they, they can do it from home. They can do it remotely. But one thing that is often used as an excuse or reason why we have to call people back to the office is our culture. We got to pull people back in for the culture. Well, yeah, if your culture was beanbag chairs and craft beer on tap in the break room, well, then yeah, you got to pull people back into the office for that. But that's not really what culture is. You know, culture is 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 how we do things around here, and, and people don't want to show up at the office because you got some cool furniture, right? It's it's more than that. It's deeper than that. So where I see in the next five years to 10 years is maybe maybe an understanding of what are those evergreen principles that create a good culture that people can commit themselves to. So there's a long-winded answer to a short so, question. No, it's a refreshing, it's a refreshing perspective, especially as there's there's so much of the the sort of fad and ideas of the day that are coming out that it's it's this historical look that you bring to it and that return to the basics and doing them right and being a decent human who can work well with other people. And that's a, uh, in its own way, refreshing to hear now. Well, that's, that's good. That's good. Yeah. It's uh <laughs> thank you. Um, yes. You don't want to, yeah, you don't want the, the people who disagree with that. There's, there's bigger problems, yeah, right. um, but I think it's, it is really like the, the it, it's nice to agree with the stuff in principle, but it feels like, really doing it day in day out is where the work is yes and it's uh it's going to take patience and it's i keep going back to it is just you know how how would a farmer approach this the farmers play the long game you know they they've got and, and there's there's new technology out there right there's some really expensive technology in farming and i got <clears throat> my dad would uh one day a year, um, my parents would allow me to to take a day off school and skip school, and we would go to the World Dairy Expo in Madison, Wisconsin, and that, and it is people from all over the world because you know Wisconsin is the dairy state; uh, it's America's Dairyland. And so I, I grew up on a dairy farm, and we would go to the to the World Dairy Expo, and I remember as a kid walking through there and looking at all the different machinery and technology. And this is going to be back in the eighties just to date myself, but you know, they had robots, they had robots milking cows back then. And I was like, wow, that's crazy. You know? So the analogy I'm making here is that five, 10 years from now, some of the technology may change. You may have milk and robots. You may have AI in your business. You know, you, you have to have the version of milk and robots in, in your business, maybe AI, but there's still going to be some foundational things like, I, when we saw the milk and robots, I remember my dad saying, yeah, if only they could get a robot to feed them. You know? <laughs> so there's still going to be some fundamental things. Or if, if, if only they could get a robot, to, robot to pick up the manure, right? It's there, there's still going to be some, some core basic foundational evergreen seeds, you know, that, that need to be planted no matter what, you know, the twists and turns of your industry. Um, yeah. So Dan, so we did a lot of studying of different leadership theories um, during our time at, at GW. 
Can I ask you what's a leadership theory you most ascribe to? And then what's one that you think is something you don't really fully agree with or might be overhyped in some ways? Servant leadership. I ascribe to that. Um, for many years, I led a team of, of independent contractors. So of those 275 sales reps that I talked about, they were all independent contractors. They were not W-2 employees like reporting to me. So my legitimate authority, legitimate power was very limited. You know, I, I needed to influence them because they didn't really have to listen to me. They, they had to want to. And I would, I would say out loud to them, you know, I, I would say the words, I say, listen, guys, I work for you. You don't work for me. You know, what, what can I do to, you know, I am here to serve you, right? I work for you. You don't work for me. Now I'm an at will employee. So I'm going to choose, you know, how, how and where and when I'm going to do that. You know, because I'm a servant leader doesn't mean I'm just your servant, right? Uh, we're going to be in this together, but I do look at you as my, my number one customer. You're, you're my primary customer. What, what can I do to help you achieve your goals? So taking a, a servant leadership approach, and I don't know if it's because I just had so many years where I was doing that, I, but also situational leadership. You know, I can recognize a lot of times in my career where I was differentiating between who I was delegating to, who was, you know, so who I was supporting, who I was coaching, who I was directing, you know? So if there's some, and maybe the way that I viewed the situational leadership with servant leadership is like, this is how I'm best going to serve this person in this situation. This I do need to direct in this person in this situation. This is a person who I just need to coach. This is a person, you know, in where they meeting them where they are. Yes, I need to delegate to them. This is a person who needs my support right now. You know, so and it's fundamentally not how do I feel like leading them? It's what, what do I think would be the best approach to best serve them in this moment? Yeah. And I guess if I'm going to go back to the second question, authentic leadership, right? Um, I, I have some questions about that. I mean, I know that sounds weird because I just talked a lot about like how, you know, there's a lot of fake stuff out there and people are thinking about, you know, they need authenticity. I get that. But so, sometimes in the authentic leadership, and maybe I'm, you tell me, you tell me how, how you feel about authentic leadership. Yes, people love authenticity, but I've seen some folks twist the idea of authentic leadership into, um, well, I'm just a jerk and that's who I am and you just have to deal with it. I'm being authentic. You know, like, uh, I had, a <laughs> I had, um, uh, a leader of mine who was love him to death, very authentic guy. Um, the guy, the guy would, would, uh, often drop F bombs in, in a meeting. Right now, the team that I was leading and they, and, and some occasionally people would call him out like yeah, language. He's like, that's just who I am. Right. You got to kind of like, you got to deal with that. That's just who I am. People want authenticity. Yes, they do. But, you know, when I asked him to come in and to talk to my organization one time, I said, hey, man, this, listen, I, I'm no prude, right? You, you, we drop F-bombs around each other all the time, but like just not in this room today, right? Not, not for this group here today. And he was like, 
you know, almost had to clutch his pearls. Like, oh, what, what do you mean? That's then I'm not being my authentic self. I'm like, please, man, just like, just not today, you know? So I don't know if that's answering your question, but it, it's it definitely is. Yeah. Like it's about just cause you like to talk a certain way or you're not worried about offending other people, but those other people are worried about, or just, it, your message is going to be lost. And the way I explained it to him, like, dude, you got such a great message, but people are going to tune it out the first F bomb you drop. You know? Yeah. Um, so I don't know I, if I disagree I really, with the authentic leadership, but that's just, I'm, I struggle with it. Um, no, I, I totally, I, I totally understand that because I, I think there is a misconstruing of authentic leadership that's exactly this. Um, Seth Godin, I'm not sure if you've come across. Mm-hmm his books and everything but he 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 says authenticity is a crock which i always found an interesting way to put it but <laughs> his his basic message is that you're as a leader you're um you're always um putting forward what you need to in order to move the the activity the cause the mission the whatever it is forward and it's it's so much less about what makes you as the leader feel good or feel like you have to do less work. And it's much more about what do you have to bring forward as a leader. And I I find that pretty compelling too, of there's, there's a lot of times when, you know, what feels good to you as the leader is not necessarily what you should be doing in order to really make the impact you want to be making. And a lot of times the leader, it's doing the hard things that might not, might not be easy that really will move the needle. Wow. That's yes. Put that on repeat. You know, the, it's so much easy to, it's so much easier to just be yourself. Right. But that doesn't mean it's the most effective, right? You know, it's yes. Be yourself. I mean, don't, don't be fake, but just there are times where it's really easy to be yourself. It might be harder to be the best version of yourself in that particular moment. Um, and, in one of my very first mentors, he'd often say, you know, it's not about you, right? Because I would go in there complaining about, you know, that the team doesn't do this. And I told them this and I, this and I, this, and he's like, it's not about you. It's about what you can do for them. Oh, okay. You know, so, so yes, the, the, you know, the way that I talk the what I do or the, what I feel, or I'm, I'm just being authentic. Yeah. But you know, is it about being the real you or the best you? You know, and I don't know if they're, you can probably do both at the same time. I'm sure there's someone who could dive into that. But but since you asked, is, is there a, a leadership theory that I'm still struggle with? It would be that one. Yeah, it's not using, it's not using authenticity as an excuse. It's, it's not using authenticity as a crutch to just do whatever you were going to do. It's, it's being being genuine, having integrity, all of the things that you, you mentioned are, are fundamental to being a good leader. And at the same time, it's not just, okay, I'm going to go and unload on my team because it makes me feel better about some other thing that happened in my life. And that's, that's terrible leadership, obviously. So it's, you know, it's figuring out what, what parts of your authentic self you can bring forward and making sure that you're self-regulated enough where you can actually give people the the steady leadership they need to grow the organization over the long term. I, I had, yeah. And, you know, kind of doing what you feel like doing. And, and I had a leader once who, uh, 
she was coming in to talk to the team. Uh, she was like a VP and she was coming in and talking to the team that I, I led. And, and there were some folks on the team who were like, well, we, we I don't remember what the topic was, but they kept saying, well, we'd like to do it this way. And we like to do that this way. And we like to do this. And she goes, way well, to continue to do it because you like to do it or because it actually works. Cause they might not be the same thing, you know? Um, so yeah, it's, it's an interesting topic. It, sure. it definitely is. Yeah. Um, one last question for you, Dan. So, um, is there a leadership book or some other resource that you find yourself returning to the most often? On my desk right now, um, is I'm looking at, uh, leading change by John Cotter. Um, because we're, we're going through, uh, I'm, I'm currently working with an organization to change kind of their go to market and some of their, their sales practices. So I've found that, um, you know, just a good refresher of kind of working through the eight steps of, of Cotter's change management. Um, I keep coming back to that. Um, it's a, certainly not a new book. It's been out probably close to 30 years now. Yeah. Tried um, and true. And uh, the four disciplines of execution, I, I find myself coming back to that as well. Uh, I think Chris McChesney is the main author on that. It's, it's from the Franklin Covey folks. I don't know if you're familiar with that one. Um, I haven't come across that one in particular. What's the what's the gist of that? Uh, so it's the four disciplines of execution. And, and the thesis is, is strategy is knowing what to do. Execution is knowing how to do it. And it really, if you want to talk about some tangible takeaways that's got like you know super tangible takeaways on how to actually execute on something you know this broad strategies of but first like okay so how is that going to work on the ground you know um yeah the four four dx four disciplines of execution find myself coming back to that one and this is going to be a, a super old school one maybe i'm dating myself or maybe it it fits in exact with exactly the type of leadership theory I, I uh, um, ascribe to, which is uh, developing the leader within you by John Maxwell. Yeah. Classic. It was the first leadership book that I read and it I think it was the first one that he wrote before he had to go like pump out a book every three months. Um, you know, the 21 irrefutable laws of this, the 17 laws of that, like, um, it's uh but that that was that's a you know the the different levels of leadership in that make a lot of sense especially for the type of organization that i was leading um yeah so, it goes goes right in line with um some of the the real classic foundational um elements being what's missing now so i've, I've really loved our conversation dan thanks for sharing all your expertise with us oh this is great i, I this is awesome Fantastic. Thank you for having so where me. can oh I'm I'm so glad to so glad to have you and thanks again for coming on. Where can uh people find out more about the book and what else you're up to? Uh danbradison.com and uh probably in the show notes or a link to get the proper spelling of my name. Uh uh D A N B R E D E S O N dot com uh will be the, the author splash page for uh, the book. You can grab the book anywhere. Anywhere that you uh, purchase books, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, everywhere that you can buy a book, you can find it there. Fantastic. And the book is Seeds of Culture. So definitely recommend that everyone check that out. It's, it's chock full of all kinds of wisdom from 
Dan and something that that everyone should really check out. And um, so we'll we'll put the links to all that in the show notes. Um, and listeners, thanks again for joining us. If you got something out of the show, if you can share it with a colleague, leave a quick review, that helps a lot in spreading the word so others can find us. And Dan, thanks again for joining us. Hey, this is this is fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. Of course.